the Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're gathering to contemplate Martin Amis, who died last week, just a Saturday evening the news broke, and I'm very pleased to be joined by the critic and writer Alex Clark, by the novelist John Niven, and by our own Philip Hensher to talk about it. Now, Amos said something to the effect that it's when the obituaries are written that the starting gun is fired on a writer's reputation. So I want to start by asking you all, you know, where are we now with Amos's reputation? Where does that starting gun set us off from? I think of late, it's been, especially as a novelist, it's been fairly low. There's a view that's become prevalent that, oh, it's really about his nonfiction, his criticism, which I think some of which is fabulous. But I think he'd have been mortified to not have been considered primarily a novelist. I think that's how he saw himself. And I think it's going to take a little while for him to get his due desserts for, for the novels, certainly for the, for the later novels, which, again, this prevalent view I have not much time for is that Everything kind of after the information was not very good, which is just a garbage view. John, I agree. I was a reviewer of both the zone of interest and of the thing that sort of hovered between novel and memoir inside story. And I completely agree. I think, of course, those early novels and mid-period novels are amazing, but they are not the entirety of his work. And this kind of narrative of the downward slope should be resisted mm. fiercely, I think. Mm. I think a lot of the comment that, oh, it's the non-fiction that, uh, that matters, is slightly troubling for what it says about our response to the novel as a form, really. I think we're very kind of nervous uh, about the novel, about what novels actually say or don't say. This literary form that can be at its most profound and most masterly when it's about nothing very much. You know, mm. or when we don't know where to, how much to trust what it says. You know, people say, oh, the nonfiction will survive, but the novels will fade away. I think it shows a remarkable lack of uh, knowledge of literary history. I can't think of a single novelist whose novels are, for, are forgotten, but the essays remembered. Either it all sinks together, or I think will happen with Amos, the nonfiction will sink to a kind of interesting incidental point. And we'll go on reading um, Money and London Fields, and in my view, uh, The Pregnant Widow, which was a very kind of uh, underrated and I think uh, a beautiful novel from his last years. Mm. I think a lot of it comes from a place of, in his non-fiction, certainly especially in experience, you see a slightly softer side. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with spikiness and rough edges, and the novels are certainly full of that. And people, I think, find it easier to come out and say, oh, I really like the, the non-fiction, whereas the, the novels are a bit dangerous, aren't they? But they get tenderer, don't they? I mean, isn't that one of the the trajectories he takes, that the later fiction 
suddenly it's a little warmer. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a bit warmer. He, he said the sort of cruelty of a novel like money is very much a young man's game, and that you do the age does or should soften you. But you know, I I think I'm be careful with this conversation because you you edge you feel yourself edging towards that horrible view of saying a lot of people don't know what a novel is anymore. They don't know what it does. You know. I know. I keep thinking that phrase from Succession. These are not serious people. I keep thinking, <laughs> and then I realize I just I mustn't say that because you know you don't have to be a serious person to like a novel. And it doesn't matter who likes what. And I really firmly believe that just read what you like but he was a really serious person I think a lot of the emphasis on the non-fiction which I enormously admire and have been asked to talk about since he died is to do a little bit with the trying to divine something of his personality mm. uh, in journalistic terms I think a lot of it is a kind of featureization of Martin Amis of which you know he, I don't think he was particularly prepared to play that game he struck a pose sometimes both in novels and fiction and, and non-fiction and in life but I don't think ultimately that was his view of what a creator should do and I think you see that from those novels and on the question of the reputation I mean he just so eminently wasn't a people pleaser in novels I mean look at Lionel Asbo for oh. example <laughs> The um, question of seriousness however I think he, he had it absolutely right he said that um, these people, it's not that they, they're not serious but their lack of seriousness comes from their not having a sense of humour and I think it's actually rejecting the idea that is key to Amos. And it runs all the way through from the first page of Rachel Papers all the way to his last book, is there is nothing that cannot be laughed at. Yeah. That's absolutely the vision of a truly serious person. Yeah, I think it's a very key point. And uh, I wrote a long piece myself, just went up today, about how much he made me laugh over the years. One of the... Mm. Sort of doubled up, barely laughing, hysterical laughing, and I think that's also a reason why he never won many prizes because we do not value funny as we should. And one reads through the Booker shortlists for the year, certainly that you know, Money, London Fields, and Information were published, and you quite quickly build up a proper head of rage. Of are you kidding me? Some of the books that made the the shortlist that year. But, you know, I don't think that's unique to, to Lefferty. You see the Oscars every year, don't you, and some fabulous but funny movies get nothing. If you want to make yourself really fall into a fit of rage, look at the books that won the big American prizes, the years that Nabokov published Lolita and Pale Fire. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make you a note to do that after we <laughs> Does anybody here think that John should be provoked into falling into further fits of rage? Yes. <laughs> as, as an avid Twitter follower, I mean, I, I just that's not where I see the intervention needed. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, it generally doesn't take take much, Alex. <laughs> look, look, Philip, you you mentioned this question of the novel being prepared not to say very much or to say nothing in particular, but, but Amos, and it's one of the attack lines on him or one of the complaints made of him, is that he really started to become, in a way that some people felt was at odds with his natural talent, to say big things about the world, about vast subjects. I mean, how much do you think there is truth in that criticism of him, that his, his natural gift was as a comic novelist who would just be performing 
and that the sort of moral seriousness of him taking on nuclear annihilation or entropy or you know Hitlerism or the the gulags was a sort of mistaking of his own gift. I think there's a lot of truth in that, and um, I have to say that he, you know, I think he's an absolutely marvelous observer of uh, the way people speak, the way people think, and you know, I don't suppose that anybody will ever read London Fields for you know, the pages about the uh, destruction of the universe. And, but, you know, you have to let a an imagination as free as that go where it wants to go. And he wouldn't be the first novelist who went in directions that um, posterity doesn't necessarily find um, find the best part of them. The, uh, you know, the things I kept thinking about was uh, that thing that Swinburne said about uh, Wilkie Collins's later novels. He said some devil lured you to perdition, with the phrase Wilkie, have a mission. And I think there is a way in which um, Amos, he not only started sometimes to write about these big subjects, but to write about them in the ways that people thought that they should be written about. I think that some of those novels that deal with huge subjects, specifically Time's Arrow, which takes such a perverse and indirectly affecting approach to Auschwitz. I think they're some of his best novels, but it's a case of the sort of assumed solemnity that sometimes starts to um, creep in. And I think that that is particularly a problem with the uh, with the volumes of memoirs, if, 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 uh, if I can say so. Do you mean like Cobra the Dread and the like, would you say, Philip? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really want to start um, start going on about uh, the bits of, of Amos that I don't like, but there's so much that I do like. I think he's uh, I think he's absolutely tremendous. I think he went on being tremendous. Yeah. How do you think The Pregnant Widow relates to Inside Story as, as both being these kind of novelistic approaches to memoir? Mm. One for Alex. Oh, wow. I, I mean, listening to, to Philip, also listening to all of you, I mean... I think one of his great subjects was impotence. And it, to me, that's what links the stories of sexual desire and the desperation to get chicks into bed and not being able to. And then the, actually the, the, the falling down helpless in the face of your own desire and its whims. It's linked to the helplessness that he makes characters and narrators feel in the face of huge global events and history. He is kind of saying, look, we're completely powerless, pathetic and animals in many cases ruled by cock. You know, that's what he's kind of saying. And so to me, am I allowed to say that on the podcast? Of course you are. We're all grown <laughs> up here. Thank you. Um, it, but, just like it wasn't me. <laughs> but you know that 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 is his territory and he found different ways to express it and so i have forgotten what you actually asked me in the first place <laughs> well it's just it's to do with his treat, treatment of memoir and and the way he kind of jumps between fiction and non-fiction well you know the jumping i think that again was something of a game it's also something that he i wouldn't say he invented it because i think he belongs to a tradition going right back to the well, God, Philip Philip is a better historian of the novel than I am, but 17th and 18th centuries, I would say. But I think it was an interesting game and it was also an interesting sort of way to think about identity and reputation. Of course, things he was enormously interested in. I mean, if I could jump on a second on the question of, of him as a memorist, I think 
he is refreshingly candid and frank for a man. If you read the memoirs of many of his heroes, whether it's John Updike, Self-Consciousness, or Nabokov, Speak Memory, or even his, his father's memoirs are basically a collection of drinking anecdotes. Then Updike's and Nabokov's memoirs are famously very oblique, whereas the, the novels of Updike and Nabokov are famously very revealing, perhaps more so than you want and certainly it is. So I think Amos unusually, for, but I think women do the confessional memoir much better as men. I know that I'll, be a huge, I'll just throw that huge generalisation in there but you know the, the kind of confession right whether it's like Catelyn Miranda's or I've just finished reading Jenny Fagan's memoir which is fabulous and they're very open you know in a way that men often don't get down to that but I think experience and I would say that Inside Story is a memoir for all the you know a, put a, a novel in the cover all you want mate yeah. but come on Agreed. and I think that's what when he got a a bigger audience certainly with experience or when more people came in both, I think they responded to that. It's not necessary for me. I, I, I do agree with Kingsley when he said, you know, I've already written nearly 20, you know, confessional memoirs. They're called fucking novels. You know, <laughs> you, you, you find almost everything you need in there if you know how to read it, don't you? I think there is a way in which once we start to talk like this, we are bringing an extra li- literary criterion of judgment into it which is how truthful is it and i'm very uneasy with that i think the difference between the um the pregnant widow and the uh, and the, the memoir which you know is where we started started from i think that um amos was supremely good at taking a novel on a journey of tone and change and development and the way that uh, the pregnant widow begins with this very kind of light-hearted actually rather vulgar and crude comedy of bikinis and um, uh, partner swapping on holiday and by the end it's simply heartbreaking Mm. about what the these lives have been through i think that's really something that only the novel can do i can't think of any memoir that changes and develops and grows and slows in the way that uh, the best of Amos, uh, Amos's novels do. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I completely agree. Just as we were talking, memoir, I think it's fair to draw draw in the sort of the biographical confessional, but I I don't think it's relevant when you talk about the novels, which is why I think also that, in my view, the novels will last longer. Yes. And actually, weirdly, since he died on Sunday, where I went on Wednesday, he died on Saturday night, the first book I picked up and started rereading was actually Inside Story. And mm. I, I guess it's it's impossible to separate from events, but it's like almost every page is suffused with someone who knows time is short. You know, I mean, I guess he, he was almost 17 when he was writing it. Of course, time is short, but I, I think maybe shorter than we knew, you know? It, it, it's... It really is, as he said himself, at some point you stop saying hello and you start saying goodbye. And the book really is fused with that. I yeah, think. that's that, that whole melancholy of him, for example, being at a, a, a literary festival and noticing other writers getting more attention than he does, that is so far from the kind of, you know, commonplace kind of rivalry and so deeply into a sense of somebody appreciating that their time is naturally shrinking and their space is naturally shrinking and that is what is affecting about it yeah yeah i only ever met him in a professional 
settings. He was um, extraordinarily kind and supportive and interested in what people, what you particularly were up to in writing about. And uh, to be perfectly honest, that can't be said of uh, many, um, many writers of that generation. He was a very, very kind and interested person. He made a big performance of not being slightly interested in any other contemporary, mm. but true it wasn't true yeah. he read uh, he read well there was that quality of, uh, in which i'm really interested in getting your takes on of you know at least in his public persona and a lot of his pronouncements you know he was intensely competitive and very sort of you know mass male turkey cocking was it was sometimes called but then you look in experience and he's constantly undercutting himself as this you know his young self being the sort of ridiculous turkey sort of peacocking osric osric and he's a very controlling writer, but sentence by sentence, absolutely in control. But as you've already pointed out, you know, so many of his characters are powerless, are impotent. I mean, it was a sort of competitiveness that wanted everybody around him to get better in response. It wasn't the sort of competitiveness that you sometimes come across in uh, not such good novelists that wants to destroy the opposition. Mm. Yeah, the quote that I love about literary um, success and ambition says that the, the literary aspirant on their way up, when they make it there and become published, they expect to find a champagne reception waiting for them in first class. And what they find instead is a raft full of snarling skeletons. <laughs> 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 which i love well it was interesting his love of sport and his kind of interest in sporting figures and sporting heroes i mean there is that truth about the small world of literary success you know the circus of it it's a tiny circus when you compare it to any other entertainment world i mean in other words no novelist is that famous mm. no, no novelist is that famous Mm. Sorry to say yeah. that. Jesus, should I have said that to the novelists here? I didn't mean, I mean, you're famous for me. <laughs> These novelists no, are you're very famous, famous for me, but you know what I mean. But certainly well, no. That's... Sort of, that means you can't walk down the street. You mm. know, I've recognised in the street maybe 10 times in my life, you know. And it's, um, you don't want it. You really don't want it. I think it's, no, it is a, sorry, I don't, can't remember what I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> um, you reminded me of a quote of his father's there when he said, I should like the chance to find out that fame and riches and girls throwing themselves at me in the street is very boring <laughs> for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, his father was kind of notably pissed off, wasn't he, when Martin you know, went into tax exile at the age of about yeah. 24. <laughs> oh, no, he was boasting. He well, was... eight thousand pounds here on this year, the little shit, little shit that he had. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was proud of him. There's no doubt. You know, he went around complaining, but that was Kingsley's. Uh, that was Kingsley's way, wasn't it? Yeah, and I always thought it was very equable of Martin Lewis that he. I mean, who knows what the, what was in his heart? But from all I can understand, that he was completely understood the fact that his father couldn't get along with his fiction, and that you know, he bore bore him more ill will. Said, you know, if he could have faked liking it, he would have. But he was incapable of that kind of thing in connection with literature. You know. Martin must have taken a lot of comfort in remembering that what happened to his father in the last 10 years of his life after the old devils would just sort of reach a low point at Kingsley's death. And mm. I think every year since Kingsley's death, people have been looking again more and more 
uh, those novels. And I think his reputation is growing and growing. Even the very last novels, The Folks That Live on the Hill, mm-hmm. which terrible reviews when it came out, that's a marvellous novel. That mm-hmm. really is a novel. Mm-hmm. And there are books that Kingsley was writing in the 70s that really start to overlap with Martin's, ending up about um, mm. isolated people in a cottage um, plotting how to kill each other. It really starts to look like dead babies. Mm. Babies, doesn't it? Yeah. I written about the same time. Was Kingsley's great complaint about Martin, which was that he wasn't capable of or willing to write more sentences of the type, you know, he finished his drink and left the room. Do you think that that complaint kind of holds water is that a weakness of martin amos's you know his his style was so virtuosic that he couldn't escape from it i think some people struggle with that notion that every sentence bears the manufacturer's hallmark some people who are not used to reading prose that's i think if you've read if you came from nabokov or bell or obviously the people that were his heroes you like that kind of thing but i think some people who are used to reading more effectless sort of, you know, straight-ahead prose struggle. Then again, I, I saw some idiot the other day on Twitter, sorry to drag Twitter into this elevated... <laughs> bang on about how Martin Lemus hated science fiction. I'm like, no, he didn't. He fucking loved Ballard. And then banging on about how Elmer Leonard got brought into some fucking conversation. I was like, Amos wrote at length about how much he loved Elmer Leonard. And his explanation of Elmer Leonard's use of the present participle is one of the best pieces of literature for why something works. The the creamy marijuana present tense that um, Elmer Leonard uses. So um, when I say Elmer Leonard, of course, is a far more starker, hard-boiled kind of prose than Amos's. So I just think that's what he did. That's what he really gravitated towards as a writer. But a lot of people... Yeah, and he he loved the popular as well. And, you know, you couldn't take down Thomas Harris if you weren't actually willing to be engaged with what he was doing and trying to do and, well, as he says it, failing to do. And thinking also, we've been talking a lot about Kingsley, but thinking about the obvious debt that he acknowledged and went out of his way to acknowledge to Elizabeth Jane Howard, to his stepmother Elizabeth Jane Howard, and the degree to which she encouraged him and the regard he had for what she did, which is is pretty far from what he did fictionally. Mm. To be honest, I find it quite hard to follow the thinking of somebody who complains that um, a novel is made out of words. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And should you not look at the words? I mean, if someone's looking at a chair and says, well, it's all very well, but why isn't it made out of glass? And then I wouldn't be able to see it. So, So I don't know. I just don't understand it. Of course, there is something that looks like a transparent style, but it isn't transparent. It's made up of words just as much as uh, as any other form of writing. And sometimes a novelist likes you to look at a particular word and enjoy it. And Amos was very much one of these uh, these novels. That's the reason, I think, that up until now, no one's ever succeeded in making a film out of mm-hmm. one books and it's because once you take away the the words the rhythms the timing of the jokes oh although apparently they have apparently jonathan glazer's zone of interest is fantastic the word of mouth is sensational yeah so, how ironic that it's a literary preview that cans i think the day after he died yes uh, and it's a huge yeah. standing ovation apparently as well yeah for five minutes sort of thing so although partly it's loosely based so so who knows but i think as philip pointed out there i think the reason 
people will be having a version of this conversation in 50 years' time is because of the language, the vitality of, of the prose. Just like, you know, I was reminded when he died on Saturday night that, um, as he said of Bellow, he often had to remind himself that Bellow was born in 1915 and not 1951. So when I first started reading Amos and I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was stunned when I found out he was born in 1949. I thought he might have been, you know, mid to late 60s. What did you come to first, John? Uh, money. Um, by, by, I, I was 18 and I picked it off the shelf in the university library because I'd kind of heard his name. And then within a page, as he said again of Saul Bellow, the weary sigh of thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to read everything this person's written. And it was that immediate for me, you know. And then when I, when they, obviously I went back and read the four novels that had been published up to money and I was just stunned. Because, of course, when you're young, times, you know, it's the old cliche that, you know, we're, when you're younger time, when I saw that the Rich Papers was published in 1974, I was like, fucking, I was, what, seven, six? <laughs> it was, you know, I, I couldn't believe that. It was one of the first intimations I thought, wouldn't that be something to be? Imagine making someone laugh as much as he was making me laugh over that time and distance, you know, that act of telepathy was just extraordinary to me at 18. What was your first encounter with him? Uh, I think it was Dead Babies. What a place to start. And then I think it was probably money quite soon after that. And it very much, as as John said, you just think, oh, this is the boy for me. And I was very, very into Ballard at that time. As I, mean, I, was, I don't think I was a teenager, but I think I was sort of early 20s. And, you know, as, as we know, not he, he wasn't wild about Iris Murdoch, and I loved Iris Murdoch, but I didn't want novels to be the same as one another. Mine was Other People. I was 16. I think it has only just come out, actually, so I don't really know how I came across it. And um, what I really liked about it was um, I couldn't understand it. I mean, I, I could understand it, you know, in large parts, but I couldn't understand the end. And I don't think I still understand the end. And I liked that. I like a novelist that's, uh, that's as ambitious as that, that they're going to give you something and let you try and work it out. And then uh, I went back and read the others. I remember that Dead Babies was quite hard to get hold of, and I think the publisher retitled it for the paperback that you could then buy, Dark Secrets, which was very confusing. Oh, really? I've never heard yeah. that story. Wow. Yeah, it was back yeah. to Dead Babies by the time I found it. It was my, my introduction yes. to it. it yes, just... it's true, yes. Nice. Uh, Wildly was, funny and hard. When they retitled it, Dead Babies in the, in the paperback, and then I remember the, the grants list came out and uh, I very assiduously read through the, the grants list and uh, money came out just after that issue of Granta and uh, that really put my hair on end. I think it's, I still think it's one of the most astonishing novels of, of the century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I'm sure we've all been doing, I've pulled all the books off the shelf on Saturday night and I've just been amazed at the, the trove of riches in both the the short stories, the short story career move I was reading, rereading the other day, which I hadn't read for a long time, where the, 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 the minor British poet and the Hollywood screenwriter have their sort of careers juxtaposed. And, you know, poets are earning, you know, half a million a poem in Los Angeles and screenwriters are eating it out in the kebab shops of King's Cross for, you know, the odd review in the little magazine, so to speak. It's, I always felt that, that was a cousin to the Irvin Welsh short story, an ancestor of the Irvin Welsh short story where they've got all the supermodels sitting oh, around the pool looking at Builders Monthly. The Debris <laughs> by the Sea. 
Yeah. You're talking about, yeah, that's a fabulous shot story. And, uh, and the Asset House, right? The short story I absolutely love is the one about straight liberation. <laughs> this world of uh, of muscle Marys going out with each other. And I think it's I think it's a real tribute to Duane's that I mean it's so funny about about gay male society, but it's spot on the money. It really is spot on the money. It's kind of painful. What's that in, Philip? Do you know what that what 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 books that collected in? It's in heavy water. All right, I've got. Oh, I have, I'm going to look forward to reading that after this in chat. Oh, it's it's so funny. Do you think the reported material in his work kind of fell off, and and if so, was that a problem? Because I, I mean, there's that sense in London Fields, particularly. You know, he's absolutely been in that environment. You know, he's been in all these horrible pubs off the Portobello Road, eating these horrible pies. And by Lionel Asbo, it was all a bit more secondhand. Mm. Yes, I think there is something in that. I think the um, the thing that I thought he got surprisingly wrong was that when Lionel Asbo wins the hundreds of millions of pounds, he goes down to a uh, tailor on Bond Street, uh, on, uh, on um, tailor and uh, order a suit to be made. And I thought, no, if somebody like a Lionel Asbo wins that money now, they go to Gucci. Mm-hmm. something else that they don't have things made anymore and i think there was a sort of it's inevitable it's inevitable for novelists you sort of lose touch i think with the with part of society i think interestingly he never quite found and this might be to do with things to do with youth and how youth skewed later in the 20th century but i don't think he found his milieu as an older writer in quite the same way his father did I think if Philip mentioned the folks that live in the hill there, if you look at obviously the old devils, I think Kingsley was more comfortable in an older milieu in writing about the people around him and himself at that age, where I think Martin sort of jumped between, you know, you've got The Pregnant Widow, which is very much a sort of a, a reflective novel and a time of youth, largely. And you've got, um, you jump around the historical novels like The Zone of Interest or House of Meetings. But yeah, with Lionel Asbo, I think that was it was a sense of you're not quite there anymore. And he he said this himself, didn't I think he said what's the effect of, you know, at a certain point, a certain age, there's a younger generation of writers telling you it's no longer like that, it's like this. And that's not to say you can't write novels in your 60s and 70s, but I think you can need to find the milieu that you're in then and have an eye for it, you know? But he did write very well about age... I mean, itself, didn't he? I mean, that business of uh, really memorable. Suddenly, you know, the air is full of knives and the letterbox is a bacon slicer and, you know, these tiny uh-huh. injuries accumulating. Uh-huh, yeah. I yeah, yeah. felt that, you know. Yeah, I, just, I don't know that he quite wrote his old devils, that great late, late period novel. Well, there's, there's tons that I like in all the late books, you know. But that was actually one of the first things I thought on Saturday night. I thought, I'm sure there was one great, great, Late period. Who knows? Maybe it's in the draws. Or maybe it's the it's it, it's he was more interested in the loss of youth than the experience of age. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I think his father was maybe just more comfortable being a sort of you know sneering old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the danger that really lies in wait above all for comic novelists because what one generation laughs at is so different to the the other one. The thing that um, does encourage me is that. Um, uh, I remember reading um, Kingsley's late books when I was uh, when I was in my twenties and thinking I don't get where the jokes are here. It's not funny at all. And mm-hmm. then 
um, um, quite pompous about the whole thing, as only uh, people in their 20s can be. Uh-huh. Uh, and as I got older, I don't know why, I just started picking them up again. And by the time I was in my mid-40s, I've, I found all of them, every single one, absolutely hilarious. And I think it is something to do with the amassing of experience and seeing what people are like. But it means that it's very easy for people not to get the point of an older writer being funny at the time. But I think you've, you've also said something, I think, about the profundity of, of great novels and that they're, they're like wine, you know, they constantly evolve. They're not the same when you open them at 40 as they were when you open them at 25. You know, they, I remember laughing a lot at the information when it came out in 1995 when I was still in my 20s. But... um. I read it again in my forties, and I was absolutely poleaxed with laughter because, of course, you've you've lived a lot more experience, and it just resonates so much harder. You know, yeah. That that question you raised, though, also for about the you know comic novels not aging well because successive generations. I mean, you've got you've got the point about young people not laughing at old people's comic novels, but certainly reading them in the eighties and nineties, you know, Amos was so contemporary. Do you think he's going to date and suffer from from the fact that so much of it is threaded into the language and the milieu of the time he was writing about? I think the comic novel as a form can date because conventions of comedy are so much of their time. But I don't think Amos was writing comic novels exactly. He was writing novels with incidental comedy, and those, I think, when they're really well done, I don't think they ever they ever date. I mean, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a funnier novel than the Pickwick Papers. Um, I remember, you know, written in, what, 1836, and still you collapse with laughter when the fat boy says, uh, I want to make you f- flesh creep. And I hope that Amos is going to be one of those writers. And after all, you know, what's funnier than Lucky Jim? 70 years on, he wanted to rush at Margaret to push a bead up her nose. It's (laughs) it's absolutely sublime. If it's fresh, if it's not the same joke that you've heard a million times before from his contemporaries, I don't see why it shouldn't go on uh, being laughed at. You mentioned Lucky Jim. There's that lovely tender moment, isn't there, John, in experience where he hasn't read Lucky Jim, but he lends it to his next-door neighbour. At university, yeah, and he writes his father and says that um, he hears the, the the sound of their laughter coming through the wall, um, just paralysed with laughter, and that's all he says. And and the parenthesis or in the footnote he puts, "What page, you fucking fool!" Because he knows that's what a novelist <laughs> wants to know. You know. Which bit exactly? Which bit were they laughing at? Because it's one of the things that being a novelist, you don't often get to hear the reaction to to your work in real time. Yeah, and. Finally, there has been throughout his career a complaint made about Amos is that in its extreme form that he's a misogynist in its milder form that he doesn't understand or isn't interested in writing women. Um, Alex is what Martin in his younger years would have called a chick. Um, What do you make of that complaint? Well, you can probably imagine the sort of idea that that 
Amos isn't for chicks to read, which I encountered very early on in my reading of him, with men not not being sort of discouraging, just surprised. It strikes me as a sort of height of kind of literary misogyny. I don't like it at all. I have never felt that about him. I think that his ability to characterise and caricature sexual desire and the sexual marketplace makes him very alive to the frailties of men and women. So it is something that I reject because I think that underlying it, there is more this this idea that women actually just want something rather more gentle to read. And I, I find that a, a sort of not something that applies to my own reading life and not something that I think should be brought to bear on, as we know, the very serious business of reading fiction. Martin Amis, who died last week. John Niven, Philip Hensher and Alex Clark, thank you very much indeed for your time. <laughs>